Who are you wearing? This is usually the first question asked when female celebrities show up on the infamous red carpet prior to the Oscars Academy Awards show. The red carpet is an event in and of itself. For every celebrity is dressed to the nines in the most expensive outfits and adorned with just the right jewelry to accentuate their looks. As they pose for photos by all the paparazzi and are interviewed by the television reporters who are there. In fact, who are you wearing is an important question because those who are deemed the best dressed on the red carpet, well, they're advertising for the fashion designers and for the staff who created her look. This always leads to more work and recognition in the filmmaking industry for the designer and for the stylist and even for the actresses. Now, the Oscars aired this year on February the 9th before the pandemic became a real issue. And the female celebrities were front and center sporting the very best of many different designers. For instance, Margot Robbie was wearing vintage Chanel. And Scarlett Johansson was wearing Oscar de la Rente and Forevermark diamonds. And Natalie Portman was wearing Dior and Cartier jewelry, just to name a few. Each actress was identified and defined by the brand or designer that they wore and was talked about by all the celebrity fashion shows and magazines for months to follow. Now, I don't know about you, but Angela and I certainly don't have any Louis Vuitton or Gucci clothes in our closet. Our clothes are more of the frugal variety, you know, Old Navy, Eddie Bauer, and Target. Now, Target is French for Target. If you, if you think about it, uh, and if we're defined by who we wear, then I suppose you could say that Angela and I, at least our kids, are relatively simplistic which really isn't a bad thing, I suppose. Yet we live in a world that defines who we are by what brands we wear or the brands that we buy. Now, I'll never forget growing up as a middle school kid in the glory days of the NBA when Magic Johnson and, and Larry Bird and Michael Jordan and Charles Barkley were playing basketball. And even though Nike had just become a new brand name, thanks to the Air Jordans, Reebok had branded the new Reebok Pumps. Now, these shoes were so cool because they had a basketball on the front of them that was actually a pump. And you would push in the basketball and it would pump up air into the tongues of the shoes and it would inflate so that your foot would be secure inside the shoe. It would prevent you from maybe twisting your ankle while you play. And... The shoe itself had a pressure release valve that you could press and it would then release the air and you could pump it up over and over again. Every guy in school wanted a pair of these shoes, but they weren't cheap. At the time, they were $100 a pair and back in 1989, that was expensive for a pair of basketball shoes. Now, I really wanted a pair of them, but my parents couldn't afford to buy them for me. All of my friends got them, and they had them, and so finally my stepmother actually bought me a pair of knockoff brands and gave them to me, and so I wore them to school. And when I went to school with them on, everybody started picking on me because I didn't have the real pumps. In fact, my peers had defined me as the poor kid because I didn't have what everyone else had. Brands can so often define us, can't they? 
It's sad, really, isn't it? Unfortunately, that's the reality of the world in which we live in. We are often defined by who we wear, what kind of home we have, what type of vehicle we drive, or whatever brand we choose to buy. And so my question for you this day is this. Who do you wear? What designer defines who you are? You see, our scripture today from Romans transitions from loving the other, as we talked about last Sunday, to summing up the whole of Paul's exhortations that began in chapter 12 several weeks ago. Paul has challenged the church to be a living sacrifice, not conforming to the pattern of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And he's taught the church not to be competitive with one another, but to use our individual gifts collectively for the glory of God. He's challenged the church to love our enemies and not to repay evil for evil. He's challenged the church to submit to the governing authorities and to ensure that they seek the good of all. He's challenged the church to pay every debt owed, but to remain indebted to love the other among us, therefore fulfilling Christ's law. And today, he challenges the church to wake up. In fact, Paul says, And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of your flesh. Paul says, wake up, church. It's time to get out of bed, to put on our clothes, and to live in the broad daylight. In other words, Paul is saying, people get ready. Jesus is coming soon and you need to be dressed and ready for the occasion. Paul says that our salvation is closer than when we first became believers and that it's time for us to look towards the future in anticipation of Christ's return. Now, obviously, Paul thought that Jesus was going to return very soon. In fact, he insinuates this in his letters, particularly in his letter to Thessalonica in the second letter. Yet it's been over 2,000 years since Christ first came, and we know that he's not returned yet. If you think about it, we often don't think about Jesus' return very much, do we? I mean, we celebrate the season of Advent predominantly with the emphasis that Jesus has come to us as a vulnerable infant, but we often don't think about his second Advent, his final return. But I think this is a societal thing because honestly, we tend to treat other things just like this. For instance, when the meteorologist tells us that we're going to have a massive blizzard here in town, we often wait until the snow actually starts to fall before we make our runs to the grocery store. Sometimes we need to see it in order to believe it, or maybe we're just procrastinators who literally wait to the very last minute to get what we need. And sometimes our procrastination can actually cause us harm. Sometimes it can be too bad to get out, and we can get stuck, or we can't get out at all, and we don't have the provisions that we need during the storm. 
sometimes we often don't make it a priority until it's already upon us. Paul recognizes the same tendency for the church and he tells them to wake up because they are sleeping on this truth. And in doing so, they're not taking their call to follow Jesus as seriously as they should. Yes, they trust and believe in him, but they tend to hold on to the worldly stuff that Paul told them not to conform to. And they, they lead, lead with this in their everyday Christian life. And so in doing so, they compromise their faith or they make their faith a matter of convenience rather than a source of life and death. So Paul tells them to put on the armor of light and to behave decently as in the daytime. He's constantly using this imagery of night and day, of light and darkness, in reference to the evils of the world, contrasting that with the goodness of God. And he references specific evils that take place often at night, carousing and drunkenness sexual immorality and debauchery. He knows that just because someone is a Christian doesn't mean that they're not tempted to do things that stand in complete opposition to their calling. He understands that while we have the Spirit of God at work and alive in us, in our faith and in our life, that we also wrestle with the desires of the flesh that wage war with the Spirit. Part of waking up is turning away from the desires of the flesh and walking in step with the Spirit daily. Now, most of us would think that sexual immorality and drunkenness wouldn't be an issue for most Christians, but I can assure you that's not true. I've been in ministry now for 20 years, and I've heard numerous stories and pastoral counseling from members who wrestle with these demons. I've seen it firsthand as one spouse leaves another for another. I've seen it firsthand in seeing the evils that alcoholism can produce. Debauchery isn't just something that happens outside of the church. I went to a Christian college and I can assure you that just because it was a Christian school didn't mean that the Christians who went to that school and who participated in chapel on a weekly basis didn't do immoral things. But Paul doesn't limit indecency to drunkenness and sexual sin. He also points out dissension and jealousy and while it's true that dissension and jealousy can be a result of these former sins, so often they exist because of selfishness. We can fight over things together that really don't matter. We can push our own agendas, wanting everyone else to do what we want rather than doing what's best for the whole or even for someone else. A jealousy can result from a sense of distrust or competing tendencies toward others. And these sinful practices lead us away from the light of Christ and into the darkness of our present age. And so Paul commands us, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Now we live in the age of COVID-19 where many are now working from home and our regular habits of getting up and getting a shower and getting dressed have kind of changed. We can easily work now in our pajamas all day long or at the very least change our shirt so that when we're on a Zoom call, it at least looks like we're fully dressed. But back when our lives were normal, who on earth would get up, get a shower and then put on their dirty clothes that they wore the day before? I would like to think that no one would do such a thing. 
because what we do is we get up, we get a shower, and we put on clean clothes right out of our closet. And when the day is done, we put those dirty clothes into the hamper where they belong so that they can be washed. You see, Paul is telling us that we need to wake up, to get cleaned up, to get ready, and to put on fresh clothes. That's what Paul says to us, but his metaphor is actually more centered on the church's understanding of our baptism. In fact, in Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 and 27, Paul says, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. It's in baptism that we're claimed as God's own, sealed with the Holy Spirit, marked as children of God. In baptism, we die to ourselves and we are raised to new life in Christ And in the early church, those who were baptized would come out of the water and would be given a white robe to wear as a sign of being clothed with Christ. This was a reminder that they belonged to Christ and were called to put on the virtues of Jesus as they lived as his disciples. Paul speaks of these in Colossians chapter 3 verses 12 through 14 saying, Therefore, as God's chosen people... Holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity." You see, essentially, Paul is telling us that we need to remember our baptism. And so often we forget it. We forget whose we are and who we are. We forget that we have been washed by the water, that we have been cleansed and forgiven, redeemed and set apart to walk in Christ's light. We leave our white robes behind and we put on clothes that blend in like everyone else And it's easy to do. I mean, it's easier not to stand out, not to be different, to to put the robe on only on Sunday mornings, and then we can put it away in our closets for the rest of the week. Now, we don't want to get rid of the robe. We'll wear it when it's appropriate and when it's convenient to do so, but just not every day. But Paul says that you have been clothed with Christ and that you're not to take it off. A few weeks ago, I had to have a routine surgical procedure done. Now, I haven't had surgery since I was a child, and I'm used to showing up at the hospital and to have prayer with a number of you whenever you have procedures done. And so this time, the shoe was on the other foot, but I didn't have a pastor show up to come and pray with me. And so as I lay there in the hospital bed, waiting for the nurse to come in and take me to the operating room, a man in a white robe happened to walk in my room. He happened to be the physician's assistant, and he came to check my vitals before I went back. And as we were talking, I told him that I was praying that everything would turn out okay. And that's when he looked at me and he said, You said praying. Would it be okay if I had a prayer with you right now? And I looked at him and I said, Of course, I would very much appreciate that. 
And so right then and right there, he grabbed my hand and he prayed that God would be with me and that everything would not only go well, but that the results from the procedure would be favorable. Now, he did not know that I was pastor, but he knew that I was a believer. And he didn't have to do what he did. He could have said, hey, don't worry, it's all going to be okay. But he stepped out of his comfort zone and he witnessed to me. And by the way, he wasn't the only one who did this. In fact, just before he came in, my nurse came in before him and she looked at me and she took off this wristband off of her hand. And she said to me, God wants me to give this to you. Now this wristband says, and it's probably hard to see, but it says, God's got this. And it was such a small gesture but one that put faith at the center of her life, willing to show the light, the baptismal robe that marked her as Christ's very own. Who are you wearing? When people see your life, which designer do they notice? Is it Nike or Gucci or Old Navy? Who are you marketing? You see, truth be told, these designers do not really define who we are, but there is one who does. His name is Jesus the Christ, the Lord of heaven and earth, your creator, your redeemer, and your sustainer. And he has claimed you in the waters of baptism, and he has clothed you in himself that you might bear his light in the darkness of this world in which we live in. In fact, he tells us in Matthew's gospel, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they might see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Friends, I encourage you to remember whose you are and who we are and for us to leave our robes on so that we can shine Christ's light each and every single day. In fact, we need to get used to those robes because John gives us a vision in the book of Revelation letting us know that we'll be wearing them together in the kingdom of God. John tells us this in Revelation 7 verses 9 and 10. After this, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one can count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Church, Wake up, wake up and get dressed for salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. And by the way, if anyone asks you, who are you wearing? Don't hesitate to speak up for it is God who has called you to market his glorious design. He has marked you as his very own. You're called to share that with those who take notice of it. My prayer is that we would do so both this day and forevermore.
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.